you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Hey, thanks, guys. Great to be back. Welcome to Fast Money. Wow, I haven't said that in a very long time. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders for the next hour are Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan uh, Nathan. Tonight on Fast Fired Up, billionaire investor Mark Cuban is with us. Why he is calling for a major overhaul of the small business relief program to bring the economy back to its feet. Also ahead, Disney hit with a double dose of downgrades today. We'll find out if any of our traders are touching this stock. And we are all over. The big after-hours move in IBM. Shares are lower right now as the company's conference call is underway. We'll break down any of the big headlines that come out. But we begin with an historic collapse in energy prices. Oil falling below $0 a barrel for the first time ever. The May contract for WTI, which expires tomorrow, tumbling more than 300 percent to around minus $36 a barrel. Yes, minus 36 bucks a barrel. The more actively traded June oil contract also falling hard in today's session. But look at what happened to some of the energy stocks. The XOP oil and gas exploration ETF actually held up. So are there stocks that are presenting some big opportunities in this crude collapse? Guy Adami, Guy Adami, could we be seeing some sort of a sign of a floor (laughs) for some of these equities? Well, wait a second. I mean, we just don't go right into the show. I think the last time you last time you were with us was probably like December 5th or 6th. Is that right? Third. Yes. So here we are, December 3rd. Here we are on April 20th and you're back. You're not going to say anything. Well, first of all, I don't want to speak on behalf of everybody, but on behalf of everybody. Welcome back, Mel. It's great that you're back. You know, Brian did a great job. Courtney filled in a bunch of times, but this is your show and it's wonderful to have you back. What was the question? (laughs) <laughs> Could the good price action that we saw in the equities compared to the bad price action we saw in the actual contracts tell us that there could be a floor in the equities coming? Yeah, personally, I don't think so. I, look, you've had huge moves. I mean, ExxonMobil went from, I think, 30 to 46. Chevron went from 50 to, I think, 85. So you've had some pretty outstanding moves in those names. I think now it's a time where they start to give it back. I mean, we don't want to get into the minutia of what happened with the May contract. But quite frankly, I mean, if you just look at the June contract, I think that was down 14 percent. And if you don't think this can happen again, it could absolutely happen again in terms of if the situation doesn't clear itself up and it doesn't seem to want to abate. So although the commodities in a seemingly in a death spiral, I think the fact that the stocks, a lot of these stocks are unchanged today doesn't tell the real story. I think. There's more pain ahead in the equities market, just in my opinion, Melms. Well, thank you, first of all, for welcoming back, welcoming me back. It's great to be back, um, and I do appreciate that. Uh, Tim Seymour, though, I want to go to you because I'm, I'm wondering if, if you might be perhaps nibbling. <laughs> if you might perhaps be nibbling on some of these equities. That's me clapping you in. Thank you, Tim. Clapping you in. Um, nibbling is the right way to do it. I, I don't think this is time to be making uh, uh, wholesale uh, you know, allocations to the energy sector. I will say that the XLE, which is essentially the Energy Select ETF, which is mostly uh, CVX, uh, Chevron and Exxon, is up about 21 percent over the S&P since the lows of the market. So energy actually has outperformed, I know, off a low base. Um, I've talked about Schlumberger. 
They cut their dividend on Friday. That makes them more investable. This is not an, an environment to get excited. But but I think what's going on in the energy market where essentially oil traders uh, are being paid to find any place they can store. I mean, is it, the expression is oils are, oil are hitting their tank tops. Uh, and that's not a reference to what guy wears to the gym. But it's, it's a case where literally we're out of storage. And I think that's a case where um, ultimately... The industry itself is a self-correcting mechanism. There's always a supply response in commodities. I think this is good for equity. So if you're an oil trader and it's good for you, why isn't this good for equity investors who are buying good balance sheets that are going to be there tomorrow? Uh, and, and again, this isn't, hey, buy with all hands. This is, yes, there are companies like Schlumberger and, and Chevron that are actually going to be here tomorrow, and then some when oil prices in the future are going to be higher. You can't unsee Guy in a Tank Top, Tim, by the way. This is a family show. <laughs> but indulge just, me, if you, if you will. <laughs> um, the, the production cuts that were agreed to by OPEC Plus go into effect in May, Karen. So could we perhaps be seeing some relief for WTI coming? I, I also have to say I am so thrilled that you're here. You can't even have any idea how happy I am to hear your voice. I don't see you, but I imagine you look great. So welcome back. <laughs> um, the question, is there anything to be optimistic about in energy in May? Was that it? Yeah, I mean, the production cuts that OPEC agreed I, to come into effect in May. So OPEC agreed to it, and Russia agreed to it. I, you know, you got to forgive me. I'm not fully on board with believing that's going to happen. And even those production cuts were phased in and then decreasing over time. And Guy has made this point many times, and I think it's worth he can make it better than I, but that they want to see us in pain. Russia and OPEC, they want to see us in pain. Why would they, why would they step off our necks when they're you know, seemingly about to break them? So I'm not looking for anything in the oil space. I also think that some of the, oil, the energy space that has been a beneficiary, like the tankers, like a Nordic American or a Frontline, those are up so much there's risk that if there is some kind of real production cut and demand improvement, that those will collapse. So I just think there's, there's risk either way. I haven't been active in the space. Dan? Mel, crossroads, they seem to come and go, but you're back, and we're very <laughs> happy about that. I'm just going to leave it right there, okay? Um, here's the deal. You know, I mean, Tim mentioned you know, a dividend cut in, in the equities. Um, the way I see it is that you, know, you have Exxon and Chevron, which make up almost half of the XLE, the ETF, the Energy Select ETF, and you're seeing those dividends get really fat as those stocks go down. Exxon's down 40% on the year. Chevron's down 30%. You have an 8.5% and a 6% dividend yield uh, in those two, respectively. And maybe it really is the, the bottom comes, the capitulation comes in some of the majors when you really start getting chatter about a dividend cut in, the, in those names, and maybe that's the opportunity to buy them. And I would also say, say is that, you know, one thing to go in for the dividend, the other way to play it on a short-term basis would be that XLE, um, but it doesn't seem there yet. You're shaking your head, Tim. Well, there's no way they're cutting the dividend at Exxon, and there's no way they're cutting it at Chevron. I mean, this is this is something that they're hanging their hats on. And, and and look, the reason I like Chevron is not because I'm totally fired up about fundamentals, but this is a management team that's been running uh, according to free cash flow over the last three years. They didn't just wake up today and understand the dynamics in their industry. So no, I, I look. There's no reason to buy a stock for a dividend yield, in my view. I think we've all said that at different times and places. Uh, it's not why I would own them. 
But there's no way they're cutting that dividend, uh, not unless something changes dramatically. So we're talking about today and anything can happen in the oil space. But given the trajectory we have right now, and that's not a good one, they're not cutting that dividend. It sounds like, Tim, you think that there is no scenario, there is no economic environment, there is no price per barrel which would cause any of the majors to cut their dividend yields. I mean, we are, look, we are staring, right, at no. a huge collapse in oil. We are staring at potentially a global economic, we are staring at a global economic slowdown. And even this environment won't cause them. It sounds like the dividend is Teflon. So I, I like to I like to hopefully be balanced and take deep breaths on this show when it's easy to make you know big sweeping hyperbolic statements. Um, I'm telling you that oil companies like Chevron and Exxon right now um, have healthy enough balance sheets and enough cash flow management that they're not going to cut those dividends. And those dividends are somewhat existential to those companies. Uh, I can't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow, but I can tell you that in terms of equity investors right now. First of all, what happened today, we didn't spend enough time on. I'm not sure we want to, um, but what happened in the oil futures market today isn't necessarily about fundamentals. It's about necessarily storage. It's about futures contracts. It's about if, if oil in November is priced at $32 on the contract on the close today and it's $21 in June, as an equity investor, I think I want to hold out to November. And again, I want to hold out in the right balance sheet. So I'm just telling you mm-hmm. that, that I've been investing in, in commodities and energy markets for 20 years, and we see these overshoots before, um, and we know there's demand destruction, and we don't know where the economy's going, um, but the, the 16 to 18 billion that are pulled out of demand in, in, the, in the second quarter is not what we're going to have in the third quarter and fourth quarter, in my view. So own balance sheets you can stay in, and it's a great time to invest. So we've got this great Brady Bot Bunch sort of four box screen going here. So show of hands. Who would buy large cap integrated oil companies today to hold into the end of the year? Raise your hand. That would be be only Tim. Am I Bobby looking up at Greg? Yeah, or maybe Alice. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, so, so only Tim. Maybe. Guy, quickly, you think the div- if, if you are out there and you're looking for a dividend and you're here listening to Tim, you're thinking, wow, those fat, juicy dividends, they're fairly safe. You agree? No, I, listen, I, I'll, I'll take I understand what Tim is saying. I think Exxon, Chevron, I think they one of the last things they do if they had to is going to cut their dividend. I understand that. But I think something that Karen said and. You know, again, I'm pretty steadfast in this. I think we're getting played, and I think we've been getting played for quite some time. And I don't think crude oil or anything, quite frankly, is something you want to negotiate with uh, vis-a-vis Twitter or in, in an open forum. I mean, $40 ago, we wanted lower prices, and we got them, and now all of a sudden we want higher prices, and we're not getting them. You know, you have to wonder what's on the other side of these negotiations in public. I'll say this again. I absolutely think the Saudis and the Russians are stepping on our necks and they want to see our oil industry fail. And I think that's what the end goal is. And I'm steadfast in my belief that they will lose the battle to win the war. And right now they might be losing the battle, but it sure looks like they're winning this war. So let's see how it plays itself out. All right. Well, the crude crash hitting stocks today, the S&P 500 dropping more than four and a half percent. Our next guest says the V-shaped recovery may not be in the cards just yet. Let's bring in Tony Dwyer of Canaccord Genuity. Tony, it is great to speak to you on the phone. Hey, Mel. Welcome back. Thank great you. Back. Thank you. So you actually think things could get worse. What are you looking at that makes you think that? 
Well, I think we have to make sure that we know what I'm talking about with the, the V-shaped recovery. I'm talking about an economic recovery. There's already been a V-shaped recovery. I, listening to the panel talk about energy, guess what the number one sector performance is coming off of the low on March 23rd? Energy. So to believe that because the price of oil has collapsed, the stocks are at the same level they were on March 23rd, and there's this incredible opportunity. It's already had a pretty good bounce off the low, just like healthcare, real estate, utilities. The thing that's interesting about the market and the way it's rallied, Mellon, people aren't used to me not being the, the permeable, but the, the sectors that are rallying and leading the market off the March 23rd low are not the sectors that led the rally off of the March 03 or the March 09 low. So we, we're still in the view that, especially given how, how extreme, we were looking for a relief rally, but not, not a 30% relief rally. So we're, we're still thinking it's tactical. The fundamental side, Mel, that's interesting is if you look at the yield curve and how many times have we done the yield curve when we were on set. And the two-year, ten-year U.S. Treasury yield curve, everybody talks about it when it inverts because it's predictive of a recession. It's also predictive of the end of the recession, over the last three cycles, the yield curve has re-steepened to over 100 basis points. It's currently at 43. It steepens to over 100 basis points, and actually in the last two, it gets up closer to 200 basis points before you emerge from recession. So the yield curve is, is telling you, by being still so low, that any recovery you get is going to be very tame so far. That's what the market's saying. So what does the equity picture look like against that backdrop? So, so I wrote a note, and I was going to call it the square root recovery until I realized that it's a backward square root that I'm looking at. If you think about how the square root looks backward, you had this huge decline. You've had a sharp oversold rally. Now you're in this epic battle between the Fed and monetary stimulus, and that protects. I think on, on April 9th when they came in to announce they, bought, they were going to buy high-yield debt, I think that protects the, the, the total 2008 credit crisis, we're going to zero kind of mentality. However, the economic reality is on the other side of that. So what I think, Mel, is we're going to get a pullback here, and our call had been to um, get more offensive because you, while you were away, we downgraded our market view in January, and our intention, once the panic started uh, and, and it looked like it was going to end, was to get a relief rally and then followed by a test of the low. I don't think it's going to go all the way back to the low because of the Fed, but I want to become more offensive as we go down and then positive divergences develop. Karen, you got a question? I do. I agree with you, Tony, on your, uh, your general thought that the V-shaped rally was probably too far too fast. So how far back do you think we retrace before you would say, let's get aggressive again? It, it's not the level, um, Karen, that's really going to drive that decision. It's what groups are outperforming on the way down. So it's the relative performance of the sectors. You want to see the economically sensitive sectors. Like today's a great example. The financials and small caps outperformed. Like that's what you want to see. You want to see the more economically sensitive sectors start to price in uh, stability. Also, you know, I do think you can get down towards 2,500. I think we're going to be in this, you know, in this range. The problem that I have is when I look at how bank lending is acting, I look at how the yield curve is acting, I look at how the Chicago Fed national financial condition stresses indices are looking. The Fed intervened in the corporate credit market, and that, is, that, that, again, protects like a total going-to-zero disaster. 
but the credit metrics we've talked about so many times on the show don't point to, wow, we're going to have this turn in the economy once we all go back to work, thinking we are going to go back to work. So I think it's back down toward 2,500, um, but uh, more of a broad range. Tony, thank you. Great to Thank speak you, with guys. You. Welcome back, Mel. Thanks. Tony Dwyer, Canaccord Genuity. Guy Adami, reverse square. I know that's going to take yes. a lot of thinking on your part to remember what reverse square is, but you agree with that? <laughs> I don't even know what it I mean, first of all, I changed my backdrop in honor of you coming back it, to it the show. It looks very I hope modern. You appreciate it. Very it took Western a lot of work. lobby. Yes, thank you. Number one. Appreciate Well, I mean, <laughs> there you go. Number two, let me say this, and I think Karen might agree with this. You can make an argument that, you know, the market's down, whatever it's down, 15% from an all-time high. Market stocks might actually be a tad more expensive than they were at an all-time high, unless you factor in the fact that we're in the zero-rate environment uh, in perpetuity, and then you have to change the multiple. But, you know, it seems like, you know, we're three months into this thing, and stocks actually might be more expensive I tend to favor the Tony camp. I don't know if we're going to test that prior low of 2190, but I think the trajectory now is probably uh, somewhat lower from here. So I would agree with TD. All right, coming up, we are watching shares of IBM. They are on the move. Uh, they're down almost 3% right now after reporting results after the bell. The company's call is underway. They're commenting about the company's dividend. We'll bring you all the headlines. And later, billionaire investor Mark Cuban says the small business aid program needs a major overhaul to get the U.S. economy back up and running again. What he is calling for when Fast Money returns. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on IBM. Let's get to Deidre Bosa with all the details. Deidre. Hey, Melissa, and just have to echo your traders and guests. It is wonderful to have you back and see you on screen. Getting to IBM, as you mentioned, no change to the dividend. But what was a little different this quarter, new CEO Arvind Krishna, he was at the top of the call, kicking it off, and that's a change because his predecessor, Ginny Rometty, didn't usually dial into the call. And he started by saying that his heart goes out to those affected by COVID-19 and that he will be participating in these analyst calls from here on out. He also said that he's focusing on ensuring that IBM's customers emerge from the pandemic stronger and more resilient. He also said that he is absolutely committed to growth for IBM as it emerges from the pandemic itself. Now, consistent revenue growth was something that Ginny Rometty as CEO struggled to do during her tenure. Now, on the spending landscape, CFO Jim Cavanaugh said that IBM saw a pause at the end of this current quarter that it's reporting as its clients dealt with the most pressing needs. He said that that was most pronounced in the software business. And for those that did engage, he said that there was a noticeable change in priority that shifted from the stability, it shifted rather to the stability of operations and a preservation of cash. So 
They're seeing clients spend only on essential needs. Now, as for IBM's own business, I want to point out cloud and Red Hat numbers. Both of these are key to analysts because this is the future where IBM be where where IBM wants to go, both decelerated on a sequential basis, which means that Krishna certainly has his work cut out for him. Lisa Ellis at Moffitt Nathanson, she told me that cloud is a must win for IBM, and so far they are way behind. She says that while new CEO Krishna is, as she says, extremely bright, she's just not optimistic that, she's gonna, that he is going to be able to turn IBM around. Melissa? All right. Thank you, Deidre. Deidre Bosa. Um, and don't miss Jim's exclusive interview with the new IBM CEO. That's tonight on Mad Money here on CNBC, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, I do want to also bring you some headlines from that call. The CFO, as Deidre had mentioned, talking on the call, saying the company will keep paying dividends, also saying that they're seeing somewhat of a rebound in the China business from the depression it saw in February. It's all bounced back in the month of March. Dan Nathan, where do you stand on IBM? You know, listen, these guys were faced with, with a tough um, set of circumstances, new CEO, re, reprioritizing some of their businesses. This is the stuff that Ms. Rometty was trying to do for a couple of years, and it really resulted in um, sales declines every year for like the last six years. So it's great that the priority coming out of this is going to be sales growth. It's going to be off a much lower base. I know that just talking to a few friends, uh, tech PMs, you know, they're not particularly happy that that Red Hat business decelerated 24%. Uh, down to 20% in this quarter. So I wouldn't expect any reacceleration of that in the next quarter or two, especially when you listen to those comments about enterprise spending, basically IBM's customers. So, you know, this one, it had a really nice run off of the low 90s back to 120. I suspect you see it consolidate somewhere in the teens or so, you know, down 5, 10% from here. All right. The stock is down 2.8%, close to the after-hour session lows. We'll keep you posted on the headlines that develop on that conference call. Meantime, coming up, major bounce for biotech, even as one of the sector's red-hot names takes a hit. We'll break down what is next for this group. And later, we are counting down to Netflix earnings. Will this stay-at-home stock see a big boost when it reports? Stay with us. Fast Money is back in two. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. There was a big bright spot in today's sea of red. The IBB biotech ETF soaring to the highest level since August 2015. That push higher coming despite its biggest holding, Gilead, getting hit with two downgrades today. So, uh, Guy, what do you make of the move? And I thought what was interesting was that BMO and their downgrade specifically mentioned uh, the comparison to Rota's Tamiflu during the H1N1 pandemic, saying that in the first year, it was amazing, $3 billion in revenues. And then after that, it averaged $650 million in revenues in the years later. 
Yeah, and we had, I think one of the analysts, for, uh, um, Gilead, was on last week, not on our show, but on the network, talking about how the stock has probably gotten a little ahead of itself in terms of, you know, where it traded up to on the back of those announcements. I'll say this, though, in general, you know, we've been pretty bullish since you've been gone on biotech, and I continue to be. I mean, Big Cap Pharma has been a monster. I think Eli Lilly continues to make not new 52-week high, but all-time highs. Biogen's had a nice run. Looks like Sarepta's getting back on the horse. Amgen's been a monster. So... I think you stay with biotech here. I mean, listen, if you've had a decent run in Gilead, um, I think you probably stay with it into earnings, although I don't think it's necessarily an earnings story. But biotech in general, I think, is still an area you want to be in, Melms. Karen, you in IBB? I am not, but that would be the way that I want to play it. I mean, you know, obviously the holy grail is out there for these companies and whichever, more than one, I suppose many more than one could could sort of cash in on it is the wrong word because I don't think we're going to be cashing in on anything, but that would be the way to play it. All right. Coming up, billionaire investor Mark Cuban will be with us. He is fired up over publicly traded companies tapping emergency money set aside for small businesses. He'll join us when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shake Shack getting a jump today after the company reverses course, saying it now plans to return a $10 million loan, federal loan, it received under an emergency small business relief package. That program is out of money now, and lawmakers are working hard to replenish it. And while Shake Shack plans to return the money, there are other publicly traded companies that have applied for aid under that Paycheck Protection Program. Names like Potbelly, the parent company of Ruth's Chris Steakhouse and Fiesta Restaurant Group, owner of Taco Cabana, all publicly traded all getting millions of dollars in aid through this program meant for small businesses. Let's bring in billionaire investor Mark Cuban uh, for more on this and, and so much more. Mark, great to have you with, it, with us. And welcome back. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be back. First question here, is it fair? Is it fair for, for publicly traded companies uh, to take some of this money from this limited program when there are so many small businesses out there who are still waiting in line? For corporate headquarters, no. For individual franchisees, I don't have a problem with it. But the corporate headquarters has multiple, they have multiple options in terms of creating liquidity, secondaries, selling shares of stock privately. There's so many different ways to approach it. They don't need to take money that should be available to really small businesses. Congress right now, as we speak, Mark, uh, you know, they're, they're working to expand this program so that more businesses can get help. I know on Squawk Box uh, last week, you, you effectively said that banks should write the checks and ask questions later. How do you think this program, should this next tranche be released, how should it work? I mean, look, every day matters, and that's part of the problem. It should have been out long ago. And so the reality is, as much as everybody wants it to be fair, it's almost impossible for it to be because the banks are going to work with their best customers. And so really the only true alternative, I think, and a lot of people can criticize me for that, is a lottery where whoever applies, you apply, the banks turn it into the SBA or to the Treasury, and at a certain cutoff date, it, the, we just have a lottery. And it's random. It's a random drawing to see who gets money. That's the only true way you can be fair because otherwise, you know, as much as you want to give it to those who are most in need, how do you even judge that, and how do you judge that across banks, and how do you do it on a timely basis? Are we setting ourselves up, perhaps, Mark, for, for in the future having a, a large portfolio of, of bad loans on banks' books by doing something like that? Well, you're not supposed to because all this money is supposed to be guaranteed, right? And okay, that's true. part of the issue um, right now for the banks because they don't trust the fact that the, whatever converts to a loan portion will be guaranteed. 
because they've had the experience in the past where new administrations come in and they decide they need to save money and they're going to put it on the banks to, to cover up some of the bad loans. So, look, the alternative, Melissa, is even worse than the bad credits. You invest in so many small businesses, Mark, through Shark Tank. You're involved with a lot of small businesses. And so, uh, you know, for, for our viewers out there, what is the implication here? If this program doesn't get ironed out and the help doesn't go out immediately, what does that do in terms of how much deeper this economic downturn could be? It's really bad. I mean, if, you know, we've already lost time. The, you know, the concept was really good for PPP. Keep people in their jobs, keep money coming into small businesses so that um, employees stay connected. We've lost a lot of that. Now we're going to try it again, and we still don't know when businesses are going to be open. And so it may well be that after the eight-week term that businesses still aren't open and we have to start all over again. So there's real challenges. I think what we need to do, you know, the administration needs to ask questions. They need to talk to small businesses. They need to find out exactly what they need because I don't see this next tranche even that's about to be approved being enough. I don't want to get you tangled up in in all of this, but in terms of the publicly traded companies that are taking some of these loans, I mean, Shake Shack did uh, do what what seems to be the right thing, and that is give the money back because they were able to, to tap the public markets. They are publicly traded companies. They tap the public markets. They access capital as so many publicly traded companies yep. would theoretically be able to do, unlike small businesses. So, you know, for, for all the publicly traded companies who are taking these this money potentially away from the small businesses that need the money, Mark, what would you say to them? I'd say you're doing it the wrong way. You're going to kill your brand. I mean, Stake Shack didn't give the money back because they didn't want the money. They saw what the public outcry was. And if you're a business, you know, we talk about Boeing and, and other large public companies that really do need funding because their industries just crashed. And I'm not saying that, you know, big restaurant or hospitality or entertainment environments shouldn't, be, shouldn't have um, federal funds available to them. They should. But in response to that, they shouldn't be grants. And if they, there has to be any level of grant or loan, there needs to be some remuneration to the taxpayer. There needs to be warrants. There needs to be equity. There needs to be option. There needs to be you know, preferred stock. Whatever it is, someone's going to negotiate a good deal for taxpayers. At that point in time, then, if you believe that the market and the economy will come back, whether it's a year, two years, three years, whatever it is, then it turns into a good investment for the taxpayers. But just as a, here's the money, take it, you know, don't call us, we'll call you, that, that's just not, not, not going to work. You're highlighting some of the industries that uh, have to deal with, with being shut down because of the social distancing rules now in effect, Mark. And, and you are, of course, a part of a business, the NBA, uh, that, that just that thrives, that basically you know, works based on people gathering to watch a live event. Do you foresee a return to normal? I mean, that's a big question. You know, I, do I see a um, return to normal? Yes. Do I see it over the next 12 months for large gatherings? No. Um, we just have to get to a point where we have confidence. We have to get to a point where we have protocols, not just for large venues like ours, but even for the smallest clothing store. I mean, when we try to open things back up, we, you know, small businesses don't know what's expected of them. Should you be able to walk into a clothing store and try on clothes, and if you don't like them, just put them back, and nobody knows and nobody pays any attention? We, you know, there's so many things that we need to address to start opening things up, whether it's for small gatherings in retail um, or large gatherings in, in sporting events. Speaking of which, Guy's got a question for you. Hey, Guy. Hey, Mark, thanks for being here. How are you? Listen, I know this is hypothetical, but hopefully you can answer it. You know, if the NBA were to come back and say, listen, we're going to, 
restart things, let's say, in July or something. But you felt, as the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, mm -hmm. that there was still a danger not only your players and your administration and your workers, but to obviously the fan base. Would you push back against the NBA? Would you step in line? Well, we've already, you know, kind of agreed across the NBA that safety first. But let's use an example of, you know, any city that one of my companies is in, and everybody's trying to push to go to work. I'm going to use the my kids test. Would I let my kids go? If the answer is no, then I don't let my employees go. We've got to ask you, since we have you, Mark, uh, about some of your positions in the markets. And I know Dan is... Sure is curious to hear about your two biggest or what was last reported as your two biggest positions. Dan? Yeah. Hey, Mark. Uh, thanks for being here. Um, you know, Amazon, you've been steadfast on the network on this show. Um, it sounds like you never sell. It's the one that you own for the kids forever. The stock's up 30% on the year. It's up 50% from its March lows. What do you think investors just figured out other than the obvious? And do you think that there's a chance that after we reopen the economy, um, a lot of consumers want to buy local. They want to support their local stores and, and, and their neighbors who are working in their stores, that sort of thing. And do you think the stock kind of finds no. a new level lower? No, I, I think it goes up, 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 up. I think it's the exact opposite. People who weren't comfortable dealing with Amazon for, for consumables, for food, um, for produce even, I think they've gotten into that habit now. And look, Amazon can't even keep up with their deliveries. I don't think that's going to slow down at all. And I think the greatest fear factor is going to be going back, not necessarily to the grocery stores. I, I literally am just leaving our local grocery store, but to the small to medium-sized businesses because they don't know what protocols are in place to keep them as consumers safe. And so I think Amazon just takes off. And, you know, I read some stuff where they're looking at doing testing. If, can you imagine if they provided free testing just delivering to all their prime or just all their consumers? There's just, there's just so many touch points that they have that are positive that, I mean, I think, you know, it's only going to get, that stock's only going to go up. I mean, I can't, I'm not going to predict when, how, or where, but it's going up. More broadly, Mark, uh, when it comes to the stock market, are you finding any values out there? I did originally. I bought some Live Nation, and I'm about break even. Now, actually, I'm a little bit up on it. I still have my Netflix. That I've turned out to be really lucky there. Um, and then beyond that, I, I'm just waiting. I'm just not as confident as everybody else that this market has found a base. I think we can go a little bit lower, and, you know, I'll be waiting. And the other side of it is I think in the private markets there's going to be even more bargains. And so while the public markets, you know, because of the Fed, there might be some a Fed put there that, that protects everybody, the private markets I think are going to be a mess, and, and I'm also, you know, trying to keep some cash there for that. Private markets meaning private equity, VC, pipes, what sort of private um, market? No, well, some of those things, yeah, but just smaller businesses, medium-sized businesses, mm. You know, even large private companies that are looking for alternative funding, real estate, um, REITs, you know, private REITs. There's just so many different things that um, I think are going to be cash short. And if the liquidity doesn't flow the way the Fed expects it to, there'll be a lot of deleveraging. You mentioned REITs. Are you concerned about the real estate market? And, and what area of the REIT market are you looking at? Commercial, retail, yeah, just, storage? I'm just looking. I'm, I'm just Look, I'm trying to get a feel for what America 2.0 is going to look like. That's the uncertainty. The only thing I know for certain is that we don't go back to business as usual. You know, I think, you know, our large companies, if they bring back 70% of their employees, I'd be thrilled to death. Um, Medium-sized the same way, they're introducing new technology. I just, there's so many variables that I just, I don't want to rush into anything. You know, there's a lot of speculation into warehouse, you know, um, refrigerated warehouses. And there's just so many um 
industry-specific things that I want to take a look at, but I, I want to get a sense for what happens on the other side first. All right, Mark, it's been great speaking with you. Thanks, thanks for your time. We do appreciate it. No, thanks for always having me on, and congratulations and welcome back, Melissa. Thank you very much. Mark Cuban, uh, let's discuss this. And I think that Mark uh, really highlighted in the last uh, couple of minutes something that we're all grappling with, and that is what does America 2.0 look like? Where do you look uh, for the bargains, for the business, or for the industries that will thrive in this new normal that we're going to enter eventually? Karen, where, where do you go? You know, he's throwing out a lot of threads there. Right. Well, um, you know, I think there was a huge opportunity, obviously, a couple of weeks ago that has been that has disappeared because of the giant market move. But one name that he mentioned that I am long is Live Nation. And you couldn't be in a worse spot right now. Right. You have concerts and um, ticketing. Right. So this is a terrible spot to be in. But I do um, think about a year or two out. I mean, summer is the, high, is the biggest uh, quarter of the year for them. It's going to be uh, near zero now. But if I think about a year or two out, I think that concert goers will return. And if you think about the demographic of who their customer is, that's a younger person who I think will be uh, much quicker to get back to normal. So I think that concerts will be in America 2.0. Guy Dami. America 2.0. What does Guy Adami see in America 2.0? Well, I'll be 75, I think, at, at that point. <laughs> so for me, it's going to be about health care. <laughs> and it's something we've talked about for a while. So we're not changing course. But I think Big Cap Pharma has worked, will continue to work. I think Karen, Tim, probably Dan as well would agree. I think the banks, people are trying to struggle with, you know, what's the right valuation? What's the right price for banks? J.P. Morgan had a week. Last week, where it was up and down 5 to 8% almost every day of the week, unheard of. But I think you want to be in some of these banks, J.P. Morgan specifically. And, you know, listen, I hear what Mark is saying about Amazon. If I were trading the stock, I think you absolutely have to take some money off the table into earnings, which I believe are on Thursday. Although he's probably right in the long term, I think there's a chance to take some profits in the short term. Tim, just quickly, what areas? I mean, he mentioned REITs and different sorts yeah. of REITs and so on. Well, well, it sounds like he's also fired up on, on cloud and automation yeah. and AI and things that I, I and, but the other side of what he said was it sounds like a lot of people are going to be out of work. It sounded to me like businesses are not going to be hiring back where they were. And it just brings me back to things like Walmart that have been so defensive. And yet they are the biggest Look, they are the biggest uh, shop for consuming in this country. Uh, they have the most exposure to the consumer. And I think to have rallied it to all-time multiples is a little scary to me. So that, that is one I'll take the opposite of kind of or I'll, I'll inversely assess what he said and said negative for Walmart. All right. Coming up, shares of Disney on Mr. Toad's wild ride today. The stock getting hit with not one, but two Wall Street downgrades. What are the analysts saying? And do our traders agree? Find out next. Uh, the White House is holding a briefing on the coronavirus right now. We are going to monitor that and uh, bring you any headlines as they come on. Uh, in the meantime, we've got to talk Disney getting hit with not one but two downgrades today. UBS and Credit Suisse both dropping their ratings, their buy ratings on the stock. The impact from Disney park closures, a top concern, but with the stock tracking for its worst year since 2008, is the pain already priced in? Karen, I think that's a question that everybody's trying to grapple with. I mean, if, if theme parks... You know, if they're about 30 percent of Disney's revenues, then what do you assume 
uh, in terms of the drop in attendance, how long that's going to last in order to get to what the stock is pricing in? I think, I think nobody knows, but aside from theme parks, I mean, think about their other businesses. When you look at media companies, I don't know that anyone else is more exposed to live sports than they are. When you think about hotels and cruises and Broadway and consume their stores, I mean, they're in a, just a collection of businesses that are, you know, right now actually not where you want to be in so many ways. But Disney is Disney, and they deserve a premium multiple, but they've got one already. So, and they do have debt from their Fox acquisitions. So I think that it doesn't deserve to be at an even greater multiple, given all of the, the hot spots that they're in, or cold spots, I guess I should say. And this stock has rallied already from $83, which it probably never should have been there, but it's already up considerably. And I'm a little concerned about this rally having come too far too fast. And then there is, this is a softer question, but it's the CEO question, right? He was thrown in at probably the worst time ever, maybe, maybe second to uh, Jeff Immelt's <laughs> sort of 9-11 starting day. Um, and so there's the question of the management transition and how that's going to work out. So you put all of that together, I would say Disney's not a buy here. I wouldn't say short it, but I don't think it's a buy. The live sports exposure and specifically the downward uh, trend that we're seeing in ads, Tim, that was specifically mentioned by both of the notes here uh, for shares of Disney. But do you see value here still, especially as they are spending so much money I do see on the streaming service? Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, it, it, Karen's highlighted, uh, you've highlighted, you know, between consumer experiences and theme parks, it's 38 percent of revenues. Um, but you can't tell me this hasn't been priced in at least um, out the next 18 months in terms of almost massive total disruption of, of that revenue stream. This was a $153 stock, dollar stock that traded down to $83. I mean, this was a stock that did nothing for five years, then started to re-rate on Disney+. Plus. Well, didn't we just get numbers a, a week ago that said they had 50 million subs already through four months? Um, wh why did they not get the benefit of that multiple um, as Netflix, which is trading at an all-time high multiple, even for itself, uh, in this environment where everybody says streaming is probably worth more? This doesn't make sense to me. I, I think Disney's taken a lot of pain uh, in terms of what we know to be their core consumer products business. Uh, and yes, media is exposed, but um, I don't see this happening uh, on an efficient basis to other stocks in similar places. So uh, I like Disney here. I haven't asked this question since at least December 3rd, but would you rather? Guy Dami, would you rather <laughs> well, I Disney, love this game. Disney or Netflix? I love Netflix this game. with a larger market cap. Netflix. Okay. Why? <clears throat> Quickly. <laughs> now, so, because Netflix, I mean, Netflix, the, the first mover, they probably have a seven-year advantage. They don't have the, they don't have the, I understand what Tim is saying. I mean, the Disney Plus numbers were outrageous, but, you know, the drags are significant. And to be bullish Disney here, I think Karen's right. At 83, it priced a lot, and at 105, not so much. And to be bullish Disney here, in my opinion, you've got to think that somehow the world's back to some semblance of normalcy in the next six months. I just don't see it happening. I'm not, qu I'm not confident that people are going to be flooding back to Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, and you ripped that off from me, by the way, when things clear up. I think there's going to be a lot of reticence. I think Netflix, to me, has just been the monster. 
That 418 level was huge, and now we're significantly above it. So to answer your question, Netflix. I know the Hall of Presidents is your favorite ride guy. Um, but let's talk Netflix reports after second the favorite. bell. Second favorite. <laughs> Netflix reports after the bell tomorrow. One trader in the options market is making a million-dollar bet that the stock could surge past 500 bucks a share. Mike Coe has got all the options action. Hey, Mike. Mel, it's great to hear your voice, I have to say. So, yeah, Netflix is implying a move of almost 13% by the end of the week. That's above the 7% or so that it's averaged over the last eight quarters. But I don't know that the last eight quarters are really a relevant benchmark right now for volatility. One of the trades that we did see that I thought was rather interesting was a big purchase of the June 475 calls. The buyer was paying about $25 a share for those. So that works out to almost a million dollar bet that the stock could be above 500. But, you know, on the would you rather side, I wonder whether we might say, how about neither? Because at that level, Netflix is already trading, as Tim was alluding to, 52 times next year's estimated earnings. And Disney Plus is growing fast, 15 million subs versus 60 plus or so for Netflix. I think if you're going to make a bullish bet in either one options is the only way you're going to do it right now. I like Mike Coe coming out of the gate, breaking the rules. <laughs> Mike, good to see you. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, the pot stocks. They're blazing today. Today being 420, of course. What's next for the space when Fast Money returns? Welcome back to Fast Money. Today is April 20th, or 420, a major day in the marijuana world. And today, pot stocks blaze higher. Names like Cresco Labs, Aurora, Tilray led the charge higher. But outside of today's pop, it's been a pretty rough year for the pot stocks. Tim has been all over the space. He's long a number of names, as you know, as a portfolio manager of a cannabis ETF. Also sits on advisory boards for cannabis companies. Uh, you can read all of Tim's disclosures on our website. So, Tim, what's your outlook for this space, especially as a lot of them look like they put in some form of a bottom in mid-March? Yeah, big day for the big Lebowski for sure, Mel. And and I think you've got a case where if you if you look at some of the, the, the call them the bellwethers in Canopy, look at Canopy growth, um, which is actually flat to the S&P probably all the way back to November. So um, the good news for the sector is that 2.0 in cannabis means actually 2.0 management teams, and I'll stay with Canopy growth, which I am long, so to be clear. Um, but uh, they are now actually shuttling unproductive production. They are actually, forget this global expansion thing. Yes, cannabis is a global industry, but they're focused in the U.S. They re-upped their investment in Terrasen. They're actually focusing on profitable enterprises. They're focusing on cash flow. They're writing down bad assets. And it's a, a team run by a you know, former Fortune 500 CFO. So I actually think not all companies are created in cannabis. But a lot of the, the big publicly traded ones, U.S. names like Cresco Labs and GTI, these companies are very close, if not at adjusted EBITDA profitability. So a um, lot of pain in the cannabis sector, but, but management teams have moved on, and it's more than just hype. And, in fact, the top line uh, has improved dramatically. Uh, in 18 months, it's gone from uh, illegal to now essential, if you think about it. And, and I think all of those are the reasons why a lot of investors lined up to buy and now they have valuations that are very different. I don't know this big Lebowski reference. He's the dude. He's the dude. Oh, okay. That clarifies things. <laughs> uh, let's do the yeah, final trade. And Tim, while we have you on the phone, yeah. let's start off with you. <laughs> Disney. I have to fight my corner on Disney. I do think this is a medium term, if not company you can own right now, uh, best in breed. Dan, final trade. Yeah, Mel, this is a very complicated case, a lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have you. I think you sell the ITB, the iShares Construction ETF. Interesting. Karen Feinerman, Chairwoman, what do you say? 
I think Karen's frozen. One of the <laughs> great side effects of, of doing this remotely from a home. Um, but Guy Dami, I know you've got a final trade. Yes, I do. You want to share Google it? Google Machine, Big Lebowski's a movie about bowling. I'm telling you, take two interactive. Back to you. All right. Thanks so much for watching Fast Money. We will see you back here tomorrow. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.